hundred years since World War One, and um, well, all of those who were fighting uh, have now left us. But what an enormous human tragedy was wrapped up in those few years. 23.5 million people losing their lives. 21 million people were wounded. Uh, And the Christmas truce that we've remembered there, which is now being grabbed by uh, a very well-known supermarket chain to sell groceries, it's a poignant reminder actually, isn't it? In the middle of that tragedy, in the middle of that terror, there is this little glimmer of hope, this little moment that kind of shines out and speaks for a few moments about human desire, about a desire for peace, about a desperate want for human companionship and friendship and relationship. Some of those words that are recorded there, taken from the Imperial War Museum, are so powerful, aren't they? Those moments where men from each side of the trenches met in no man's land and saw each other as human beings and not just somebody to kill. And yet, isn't it also remarkable that Christmas is the focal point of that desire for peace? They sang Silent Night. In fact, the archive records suggest that it was first started the singing in German and the British troops responded in English. Uh, In a slight um, variation perhaps to what's portrayed in an advert, the records suggest that it was actually German troops who first entered into no man's land and reached out to engage with the Allied troops. And yet, within that Christmas time, that brief moment of hope and peace, by the following Christmas, it's estimated that something like 10 million people had been killed, wounded, or were missing. What an incredible and powerful picture that is. You know, the Christmas message that we take ourselves back a hundred years to that moment, just a hundred years ago, our video could actually take us back 2,000 years. And it takes us back to that very first Christmas, that moment when the celebration, the desire for peace which was reflected in the trenches actually finds its root. Our reading locates us. It gives us a a moment in history to engage with. It starts in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The Roman Empire was sweeping across Europe, North Africa, and West Asia, just spreading. In fact, In the 45 years of Augustus' rule, every year saw major campaigns of war being waged. 
Isn't that a remarkable contrast or, or, or if you like, parallel to a hundred years ago? For a few years, four years, there was war in Europe and yet for 45 years, Caesar Augustus was engaged in conflict, building this great empire. And yet we also see wrapped up in that little moment is two very ordinary people who without the events that followed would have been lost to history. Mary and Joseph who are actually wrapped up in Caesar's conflicts. It doesn't look like, but they are because there is a census which is demanded by Caesar. And that census is inevitably a means to recognize the power of the empire, to understand what taxes could be gleaned, and to understand how more war and more conflict could be funded. And here we have this little scene of a couple who leave their hometown of Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem because that is the order of Caesar in Rome. Quite a remarkable picture. And yet, what the Bible introduces to us, a little bit like we see the very beginning of the conflict, just a few months of war has been waged a hundred years ago when we remember our events. In a sense, the moments that we see recorded in our reading is the beginning of the conflict that we see God waging. We see God engaging because we read in the next few verses, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. A baby is born, and really, the world has never been the same since. Right across the planet, we see the impact of this little moment in history. We see people continuing to respond to this Jesus who was born a hundred years ago. You know, it's worth, um, I think it's on YouTube, it's worth um, searching for a recent interview with Bono, the lead singer of U2. He's asked about his faith. He's asked about his belief in this Jesus. And he's confronted absolutely face on in the interview with what he makes of Jesus. And he makes the very clear claim that he believes Jesus to be no less than the Son of God come into the world. And his rationale for that, which I think is incredibly illuminating and maybe something for us to think about, he's convinced of it in this sense. The claims that Jesus make, makes are really outlandish. They are the claims of a madman, if they are not true. They are the claims of a madman. And he says he fails to come to terms with the idea that millions and millions and millions of people 
have responded to the claims of a madman in the past 2,000 years. A little moment in history, the beginning, the beginning of the conflict. And yet at the same time, we also see a contrast of powers. Every war, every battle looks like two opposing forces confronting each other. I thought it was incredibly powerful, that final recording of one of the British troops who reflected on that moment when they got the orders to get back in the trenches. And and that moment of peace disappears and they end up back in the trenches facing off against each other, power against power. And yet what we have revealed here, what we see described is an incredible, not equaling of powers, but contrasting of powers. We see Caesar, Augustus, maybe with a few meetings of his leaders, maybe a few plans, but essentially with a few words declared in Rome, the whole of the empire is mobilized for a census. An incredible event. That's supreme power, isn't it? Words are said and the world begins to move. Changes are made by a few words that are declared. And yet what we see here is Jesus born. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. (laughs) You can't really get further away, can you? From the power of Rome, the opulence of Rome. There was a phrase in that time that said all roads lead to Rome. Uh, The reason for that was because there was this idea, this, this notion that everything that was good found its way to Rome. All the treasures, all the riches of the whole of the empire were sucked in to this city of incredible opulence, incredible power. And yet if this is a conflict, What we see, in contrast, is a tiny little baby being placed in a cattle trough because there was no space for them in any of the inns. What a contrast. Incredible power and yet incredible humility on the other side. You know, if we, if we just ask a few questions of that scene, we're faced with a really puzzling dilemma. Why would God, why would the supreme, powerful God, number one, decide for Jesus to be born at that moment in time, where he's ending up displaced, and being born into a cattle trough, laid in 
a cattle bet. Why would that happen? And secondly, wouldn't God, if he was coming to do something of supreme power, wouldn't he break in with an incredible opposing power of supreme, absolute, unassailable power against what would eventually, in the light of that supremacy of God, make the power even of Rome seem insignificant? Wouldn't God do that? Surely God has got it wrong. (laughs) A child born completely unnoticed. Unless, unless the conflict and the battle and God's means of engaging in that conflict are actually defined by that very moment. That actually the way Jesus comes to defeat the problem of sin is actually in absolute humility. He comes as a little child unnoticed and sets a pattern which he later reflects on. Later on, Jesus says this, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. (laughs) I guess he was reflecting on that very moment where he was at that time, a traveling peasant teacher, and reflecting back on a lifetime of humility. How does that work? How can that be reconciled? The Christmas story of absolute humility and yet at the same time the defeat of conflict. Well, you know, World War I reminds us at least of this. The tragedy and the pain and the loss reminds us of this. There can never be freedom. There can never be liberation without cost without pain. That's what we know. The freedom and the liberty had to be won. And it cost. We are so thankful. We continue to be so thankful as we look on those in so many ways who have given their lives so that freedom might be gained. And yet what we actually see is that Jesus' means of gaining freedom is not in power, but actually is in that brokenness. You see, the birth of Jesus is the beginning of the conflict. But the conflict ends at Calvary. The battle, paradoxically, is won at Calvary. Again, in absolute humility. Just 33 years after this census is taken, 33 years after Jesus is born, after a pattern of humility, after a pattern of disregard, after a pattern of brokenness, we finally see, it seems, 
Jesus defeated. And yet what the Bible suggests in that moment and then later makes very, very clear is that that is actually the victory of Jesus. That's the moment where the conflict is won. Maybe I just want to close by asking this. Conflict against what? Conflict against what? Where is this battle? You know the amazing thing that the Bible tells us, prepares us for, is this idea. That the conflict isn't against some kind of equal forces, you know, good against evil. The conflict is in the resolving of the justice of God and the mercy of God. They seem impossible things to reconcile. They seem as though they can never come together. God's justice says that that sin, that rebellion against God has to be dealt with. And yet, on the other side of that moment of conflict is God declaring, I am a merciful, kind, forgiving God. How could they ever come together? Isaiah tells us. Isaiah tells us in this way. He took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God stricken by him and afflicted. That is mind-blowing. Because what it actually says is, even though it appears as though it's Jewish leaders and Roman authorities who nailed Jesus, this little baby ultimately, this little baby who was born in Bethlehem to a cross, the real message of the good news of Jesus is that it is God who crucified him. It is God who crushed him. It is God who opposed him. It is God who saw him smitten and afflicted. Because it is the way for us to be forgiven. So that God's mercy and God's justice can find resolution. So that that conflict between those two concepts can be brought together, and peace is found in Jesus. That's great news. I am so glad that we've been able to remember the source of the hope that Jesus brings. God coming into the world 